everyone, Anesthesia Nerds. This is Tasha McNerney. Uh, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about nothing but veterinary anesthesia and pain management. Today, we have a really fun guest. Um, she is going to be talking about maybe a not such so fun topic when we first learn it in school, um, but we are going to be talking about breathing systems. We're going to be talking about oxygen flow rates and all that stuff. So let me introduce our guest today. Um, I am going to be talking with Courtney Scales. Courtney is a uh, veterinary nurse. She's originally from New Zealand where she was trained and qualified. She has an absolute passion for anesthesia. And interestingly enough, she really loves anesthesia equipment and breathing systems. She currently lives in the UK and she has been an anesthesia registered veterinary nurse um, there since. She has worked at the Royal Veterinary College, but now she's a clinical educator for Burton's Medical Equipment. So she goes all over the place and into clinics and speaking and lecturing on all things medical, or at least anesthesia medical equipment. You probably have recognized her because she has written many articles, journals, she's been on podcasts, she does lecturing, all about uh, the practical side of anesthesia monitoring and all things anesthesia equipment. So we are going to talk to Courtney Scales. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I can't help but kind of like smile to myself when you, when you say, and perhaps not a such exciting topic about breathing systems. Because <laughs> for me, I right, love I it. I mean, how many of us <laughs> listening right now zoned out when they started saying like, you know what I mean? I just remember, I can remember that day in class because I took an evening class and I remember it was like evening. We're talking about equipment we're talking about oxygen flow rates then we start on the like circle system non-rebreather and then you know the day comes that they're breaking down the different non-rebreathers and they're like okay this is a mapleson and this is a jackson reese and this is an airs teepees and this is a and you're like i what what some people are like i don't care give oxygen to patient done just give it just, just turn it on yeah i know which again we should be using the proper equipment. I mean, everybody knows how um, absolutely nutty I am about using the proper laryngoscope. So we should be using the proper laryngoscope for our patient and not just cookbooking it and giving everybody this, you know, the same system and the same oxygen flow and all that. Um, but Courtney, tell us about your job right now. What is it about kind of like equipment that you find so fascinating and by the way i'm very happy that there are people like you out there um to come in and teach at clinics so we know how to properly mm. use our equipment i actually don't know really in my head consciously if i try and think about it what i like about equipment um i know that i kind of like that it works or it doesn't work and that you can use it incorrectly or correctly for a patient and for me i, I just find that whether it's a vaporizer or a breathing system or it's light interference on a pulse ox, I'm just like, oh, it either it either works or it doesn't work. And you can do something uh, that could harm your patient or you can benefit your patient massively. And I, I love that anesthesia is all about the patient and hands-on monitoring and looking at CO2, looking at ECG traces, thinking about like what the drugs are doing in the body. But then there's this whole other discipline that some people don't find massively interesting but for me I'm just like oh yeah we could turn the gas flow down or the gas flow up and look what happens and you know when I was working in the teaching hospital if I wanted to <laughs> spice up or scare a few students that looked a little bit bored I would just turn the oxygen flow off 
and away we go and then watch, <laughs> watch, the, panic, watch the panic. And that, that's also just a reassuring part for me because I, I could understand the equipment so well that I knew turning the flow off in the circle for five to six minutes while I was waiting to see if they would notice I've turned the oxygen off. I, I knew the equipment that well that I wasn't bothered or scared by it. So perhaps some people don't understand the equipment, especially breathing systems, so they just feel like they kind of whack it up to two litres and 2% on the vaporizer, and away we go. But for me, I quite like if we do actually understand how it works, I think it adds a whole other interest to the fascinating subject of anesthesia. Yeah, I agree. Um, certainly when I first started out in this, we, as you said, I think that we, I worked at a clinic that was very cookbook and it was everybody was usually at between one and two liters of oxygen per minute. Our vaporizer was always just set it to, mm -hmm. again, no matter what the patient depth was, no matter what the pre-meds were, we were just like, use that as our baseline and then we'll move around it. Yeah. Um, it's a fear of the unknown, isn't case it? Is that, What's that? It's the fear of the unknown. If you just whack it on two and two, yeah, yeah they wake yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, they wake up. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So many things to unpack there. Uh, but for, for, for this conversation, because we're going to stick with equipment and breathing systems, for the people that are listening who maybe are in school or they're just starting out, um, explain to them, to us, what you mean by the, a non-rebreather versus a circle system. Sure. So... Really, the clue is in the name. So with a circle system or a rebreathing system, gas is traveling around in a circle and we have the ability to allow our patients to rebreathe that gas if we are able to take away the waste product from that breathing system. And the waste product I'm talking about is carbon dioxide. So in a circle system where gas is, is, is going around in a circle from our patient to the machine, back to the patient to the machine, we are taking away the CO2 and we do that with a um, CO2 absorber, which is typically soda lime. Whereas in our non-rebreathing systems, it's it's exactly that in a non-rebreathing system. There's no rebreathing occurring technically. And we're talking about rebreathing being this CO2-laden gas from down the alveoli. So we must, you know, constantly provide a fresh gas flow to the patient with a non-rebreathing system that's going to, you know, satisfy their minute volume requirement and also flush out the CO2 from that breathing system because we don't have the soda lime, for example, or the CO2 absorber in it. So our circle system, gas is traveling around in a circle, patient machine, patient machine, has a CO2 absorber in it, has that soda lime, has that canister. And in our non-rebreathing system, it is just fresh gas all the time. Deliver it to the patient, straight from the machine to the patient to the waste, machine to the patient to the waste. So that's really the difference. One is going to have CO2 absorption granules and the other one will not. Okay, so... Most of the time we are taught and what we see in practice is that people are using a non-rebreather on our smaller patients. Can you speak to why we would want to use a non-rebreather on a smaller patient? Yeah, this is quite a hot topic, actually. So with our smaller patients, we have, <laughs> uh, we have to, it's kind of like, bam, there's a little bit of juicy gossip in there because I'm actually happy in some circumstances to use a circle on smaller patients, but depends you know how small what procedure we're doing oh my God, <laughs> so we'll just we'll just leave that Me little too, bit especially if i have my one and again i know we're not talking about ventilators but yeah we had a pda on a little uh little like i think 1.6 keg chihuahua mix and i was and he was on this well he was on the mechanical ventilator but do you know what i mean even like during induction we had him on the circle system 
because we just do it like that. It's so, definitely a hot um, topic that I think people are like, but wait, what I learned in uni or wherever I studied or in school that we couldn't put anything less than 10 kilograms on a circle system. And here we are yes. like kicking the door down going, but you can. So I like the idea of non-rebreathing systems for really small patients and some procedures in particular, because they're quite low resistance systems. So when you think about the circle system, we've got one-way valves to keep the gas flowing in that circular direction, just one way. So we've got one-way valves and we've also got that CO2 absorber. So we've got the, you know, the breath has to be pushed and or pulled through that absorber. So we think of these circle systems having an increased work of breathing. Um, so perhaps our little patients, you know, they might not be able to or they might quickly get exhausted by trying to fight those resistances to take or expire their breath. So with our non-rebreathing systems, because there's, you know, there's no valves in it really until you get to the exhaust valve, um, they can just, they'll just get this gas constantly delivered to them. So I kind of like the idea that these really small patients um they're not going to be fighting just to, to simply breathe spontaneously. Once we ventilate them, we take away all of that and we're just pushing in that gas for them. Um, but those non-rebreathing systems, they are quite nice for our small patients and sometimes even big patients I'll put a non-rebreather on um, just to yeah reduce the amount of resistance or work of breathing for them, make it less tiring for them. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, if we have a patient like on a non-rebreather, let's say we you, you put your, your cat, like you, you have a, I don't know, a 5K cat, let's just say, for example. You put it on a non-rebreather, you're going to do a dentistry on it. Um, talk to us about what are some of the typical oxygen flows or how do oxygen flows differ between a circle system and a non-rebreather? Mm -hmm. So this is where I think when people just go, ah, oh, just whack them on two liters per minute and it will be fine. And I think <laughs> quite a lot through, through this podcast, you probably hear me say, look at your capnography, use your capnography to guide your fresh gas flow. So before we had all this really cool technology in our practices and we had all the bells and whistles, we had to have these fresh gas flow calculations to ensure um, that we were always providing fresh gas to our patients because if we can't see rebreathing of CO2, then, you know, because we don't have a capnograph, then the best way we can potentially avoid it is just by overestimating the delivery of gas flow. So that's fine, whatever. We can turn that fresh gas flow up to, you know, whatever. Not too high though, because then it's like they're running in the wind because that, that, that flow of gas becomes quite turbulent. Um, but yeah, we used to over-calculate these fresh gas flow rates and different breathing systems do have different fresh gas flow rates depending on where that reservoir bag sits. If the reservoir bag is on the inspiratory side, so um, like a LAC, a Mapleson A, or if it's on the expiratory side, like the Baines or the T pieces, so the Mapleson's DEs and Fs, well, if there's a bag there at all. So initially we used to, yeah, calculate these fresh gas flows as the patient's minute volume which is about 200 mils per kilogram per minute, times that by the circuit factor of the system. So these circuit factors also, maybe maybe you can tell me, but they we've got these circuit factors number that, that we're taught, but I don't know where they actually came from. But for decades, you know, we've been saying, for example, we've got our five kilogram cat who will have a minute volume of one litre per minute because um, five kilograms times 200 mils per kick per minute is one litre per minute. So we know that we must at least provide the patient's minute volume under anaesthesia, really regardless of the system that we have. 
And then we need to times it by the circuit factor of that particular breathing system. So for example, the, the Mapleson A, so the LAC systems, the McGill's, they only have a circuit factor or a system factor, whatever lingo you use, of one. So we just need to go minute volume of that patient times one. So if I was using, for example, in the UK, we have a mini LAC, um, which you can use from patients two to uh, 10 kilograms. I would put that patient on one litre per minute. And then I would just use my capnography if I want to start playing around, you know, turn it up, turn it down, if there's any rebreathing, if there are respiratory rate changes. And the important thing is, is if there are respiratory rate changes, then the minute volume could be changing with it. So minute volume is made up of tidal volume times respiratory rate. So if their tidal volume is 50 mils and their respiratory rate is 10, fantastic. If their tidal volume is 50 mils and their respiratory rate goes up to 15, then you can see how their minute volume's changed. And therefore, on our non-rebreathing system, we are going to have to continually adjust our fresh gas flow depending on that patient's minute volume. And so the difference with the non-rebreathing systems and then the circle systems is that our circle systems pretty much just have this steady flow of gas going in them unless we need to make really quick changes to the concentration of volatile agent within that system. So for example, we have our really big circle system set up. It's got, um, you know, it's got 1.2 to 1.8 meters of tubing. Then we've got a one to two liter reservoir bag on it and then we have this canister full of soda lime or full of another type of um, CO2 absorber you know that could easily be anything from half a litre to two litres just as a canister holding the CO2 granules so suddenly we've got this huge like eight to ten litre system so when we are using our circle systems to start we must flush out that um, that room air that's in them so we've got to take out the nitrogen that's in that system, that would be in the room area anyway. So, you know, you and I right now, we're, we're breathing 21% oxygen in this room, but the rest of it's pretty much nitrogen and we've got to get rid of that in our circle. So, you know, we turn up that fresh gas flow rate when we're using a circle system for the first kind of 10 to 15 minutes if you don't have gas analyzers, which I appreciate are not as common at all as capnography. Um, oh my gosh, but it is, <laughs> I love it them. is so nice, right? Like, when oh, you add it, it's like- 50% oxygen in there, okay. Oh la la, 85% oxygen in there. Oh la la. It's really nice. And you can buy these little ones that just attach to the common gas outlet, actually. But, um, but yeah, like I said, you've got to flush, flush, flush that room air out. And then you also must fill up that um, circle system with the volatile agent to a really nice concentration. So that patient's also taking some in as, as the anesthesia's starting. And they're like a sponge. So they are just like taking it in, taking it in um, and exhaling, exhaling some. So once kind of 10, 15, 20 minutes have passed, uh, then we can turn our fresh gas flow rate in the circle system right down. And I mean, right down. So they typically say, I know in anesthesia, we love calculations. We love round numbers. Nothing makes a complex topic more understandable <laughs> than these calculations. So so with our circle systems, a lot of text will say, um, put the fresh gas flow up to like 100 mils per keg per minute for the first 10 or 15 minutes. You know, so if you have a 30 kilogram Labrador or something like that, sure, 
put them up to like three liters per minute. And then after 10 or 15 minutes, we assume we've pushed out all of the nitrogen that's in the room here that was in our huge circle system. And now it's full of 100% oxygen and it's full of our volatile agent. And now we can turn it all the way down. And what we really just need to uh, replace in our circle system is kind of what the patient's using. So we call that like our metabolic oxygen consumption or the, the patient's metabolic oxygen demand. And once again, we estimate that and we round it up to be about 10 mils per pick per minute. So for our 30 kilogram Labrador, suddenly we only really need to be um, kind of giving them 300 mils per minute or 0.3 liters per minute. But our vaporizers, they don't really like that very much. They, they kind of like a bit of a minimum flow, usually of about 0.5 liters per minute. So when I you know, talk to people about circle systems, I'm like, oh God, scrap it, scrap the fresh gas flow, whack up the gas to like a couple liters per minute after 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, just turn it back down to like half a liter per minute now and away you go. And you really only need to touch your fresh gas flow if you want to rapidly change the concentration of the volatile agent within your circle. So perhaps as an emergency um, or you would like to um, you know, wake that patient up from anesthesia as well. I do a bit of bag dumping and then turning up the fresh gas flow really high. But Kind of with our circle systems, that fresh gas flow, it's really high initially, and then it's nice and 0.5 litres per minute. You know, if you're too scared to go to 0.5 litres per minute, go to one litre per minute until you feel comfortable. Um, but with our non-rebreathing systems, it is a constant fresh gas flow that needs to be changed because that patient's minute volume might change as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I... Um... If anyone here um, listened to the earlier podcast where we featured anesthesiologist Dr. Ben Brainerd and he talked about low flow anesthesia um, and it kind of made you nervous, um, <laughs> rest assured that um, we, we really can do these lower flows. Not every patient needs to be on two liters per minute during yeah. the entirety of the procedure. Um, so I want to ask you a question really quickly since this comes up a lot and I think that I still see it happening, but we're kind of like taught in school that we never want to push the oxygen flush button <laughs> when it's connected to a patient. And can you walk us through why that is important? <laughs> oh, I love answering this questions. I always just, I always start with saying, um, we shouldn't do it before I start telling you why in case I lose you, just, just, we shouldn't really do it. And, <laughs> and, Depending on how your oxygen is delivered in practice, it is a, you know, usually a compressed from a compressed source. So it's usually from an oxygen bottle or something like that. And that is under an immense amount of pressure. I think it's over kind of like 13,000 kilopascals or something. And then we need an oxygen regulator. So um, that is kind of like the little bulky gauge that sits on top of your cylinder, for example, or on top of a cylinder in a manifold. And that will reduce the pressure even further to about 400 kilopascals. Then we actually have a, another feature that reduces pressure to a safe amount just before it reaches our patient. And I think people perhaps just take it for granted. And as soon as I say it, you'll be like, oh, what? That's a pressure reducing safety thing. And that's our flow meter. And our flow meter will reduce that pressure down to about one to eight kilopascals. And you know, if you look at your flow meter, it goes to about 10, maybe 15 liters per minute. But when you push that oxygen, that emergency flush button, you quite literally bypass that, that last step of safety feature being the flow meter. And when you push that oxygen flush button, you are literally pushing, you know, bypassing the flow meter. You are delivering what comes straight out of the regulator 
or the second to last backup, which is going to be about 400 kilopascals. And that's a flow rate of about 30 to 70 litres per minute. So I've got my, I've got my little calculator here because I'm going to be bad at maths on the spots. But let's say our, common, our, you know, our oxygen flush, you push it, and it comes out at 70 litres per minute. So that is one litre per, what's well, 1.16 litres per second flying out of that common gas outlet attached to our patient. And if you have, for example, a kitten whose little tidal volume is only 50 mils and you are just delivering one litre in one second and they've just got this tiny little tidal volume of 50 mils, you have the potential to cause just so much damage to their to their lungs. Um, barotrauma, volutrauma, whatever kind of term you want to use, I think they very much both will be very relevant here and could be um, catastrophic to our patient. Yeah, I agree. And I still have gone into places and seen people do this at the very beginning, you know, to kind of get, again, get oxygen into their system mm. quickly. Um, and a couple of times people have said, oh, well, it just goes out the scavenge. And I'm like, ah, actually. It's, it's going to, I mean, they like water. It does follow a bit of, you know, path of least resistance. And sure, some might go out the scavenge, but put a uh, put a reservoir bag on your breathing system as if it is a patient attached to via the ET tube to their lung and just push the button and just see what happens. And, and heck, if you think it's okay for your patient, put your mouth on the breathing system and peg your nose closed. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, oh my God. <laughs> then someone's like, oh my God, I'm not doing that. I'm like, then don't do it to our patients. And I think the biggest thing that I commonly see actually, now that you've mentioned it just before and you said, oh, I want to fill up my system with oxygen. In regards to circle systems, when you use your um, your emergency flush or, you know, the, the one that's going to bypass the vaporizer, sorry, bypass the flow made completely, is it does also bypass the vaporizer. So if you are trying to fill up your circle system with a higher concentration of volatile agent or you just want to change the concentration quickly and you use that oxygen flush, not only is it dangerous whilst your patient is attached, it's also bypassing the vaporizer completely. It's an emergency flush. Why would you use an emergency button full of anesthetic agent? So it bypasses the vaporizer. So if you're trying to fill up your circle system um, with what you assume is a vaporizer change and therefore maybe 2.5% will go in. No, what's happening is you're bypassing the vaporizer completely and you're just filling that circle system up with 100% oxygen um, and you're just flushing, flushing, flushing out. So if you want to increase the concentration or change the concentration of your breathing system, of your circle in particular, just use your, um, use your flow meter and just turn that right up to like 10 or 15 liters per minute. And that way it's going to go through the vaporizer. It's going to change the concentration in your circle. It's also very safer for the patient. So there's two things, yeah. You're going to cause a bit of trauma to your patient if they are attached. But also if you're doing it on a circle system to suddenly try and change the concentration, make it higher, you're just bypassing the vaporizer and the, the complete opposite will, will occur. Okay. Good to know. All right. So um, one last thing before we let you go. Um, let's talk about a case because uh, we like to do everything case-based here and give people some mm -hmm. practical information. So let's say that we are working an ER shift and we have a cat that has come in and they're about two kegs. It's a little kitten. And, you know, it got underneath or in between the door and we got the, the tail caught in the door. And now we have to do a little tail amputation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we have a non-rebreather. Walk us through for this 2K cat, what our oxygen flow rate should be on this non-rebreather, maybe in the beginning and then when, our, when we're in our maintenance phase. So I think depending on like whenever we're choosing a breathing system for our patient, right, we're going to go with our non-rebreathing system. So what have we got in our arsenal? We've got a Mapleson Ace, we've got a LAC or we've got a McGill. We've got a T-piece for that patient, could be the DEF, it could be one with a bag, without a bag, etc. Um, I'm always going to be kind of, especially in a kitten that that's small, I'm happy to use a T-piece for that patient. So I'm going to at least be providing the patient's minute volume and then the circuit factor. So about two and a half to um, three as my circuit factor or about 400 to 600 mils per kick per minute. Um, I'd be quite happy using a T-piece on this patient. I know it's quite a low resistance system. Um, but if I if I had like a mini lac with me, so just like the normal, the normal lac, Mapleson A, but the mini size, which has just got some narrower, uh, narrower tubings with uh, nice internal smooth bore. I would be quite happy also choosing the lac system because I feel like that could, we might not have such high fresh gas flows for that. So it's a small little kitten. It's two kilograms. It's probably going to get cold. If I can let it reuse some of its dead space gases, maybe it will stay a little bit warmer. Therefore, I'm just going to do the minute volume times the circuit factor of one for these Mapleson A's, for these lacs, for these mini lacs. However, we've got this little kitten. Maybe we're not good with our local anesthesia, so we're going to go and do a tail amputation. We're going to give it some opioids. Maybe we'll give it a quick bolus of fentanyl. I'm going to consider now in our small little kitten, maybe they're going to, you know, lose their respiratory drive because of the opioid. Therefore, I'm going to need to ventilate this kitten. Give it a few breaths. Perhaps the lac or the Mapleson A in this instance isn't going to be suitable for this kitten. So there's a lot of things to consider, I think, drug protocol, as well as their size. Are they going to get cooler with that fresh gas flow? Um, but we, we know we can pretty much use most of our non-rebreathing systems, but perhaps for this particular case, I'm going to choose the T-piece because I can do IPPV. Um, I can calculate that fresh gas flow. I've got capnography with me. So once I get that fresh gas flow going at about the over calculated 400 to 600 mils per kick per minute, then once our kitten's respiratory rate's nice and stable and they're analgesed, um, maybe we have done a local block, then I'm just going to play around with my fresh gas flow and turn it down and down until I see perhaps some rebreathing on my capnograph. And then when I see the rebreathing, I'm just going to turn it a little bit up just to stop that rebreathing occurring. And you'll be surprised what, what you can do. I, I know I had a big five kilogram tabby tabby boy with a blocked bladder and I had him on a T-piece and I only had his fresh gas flow, you know, right down at like one litre per minute because his respiratory was about nine, I think, even though he had a nice good tidal volume. So there was a there was an adequate expiratory pause between those breaths that allowed um, enough flow of oxygen to flush out that carbon dioxide. So for my little two kilogram tail amp kitty, I'm probably going to choose a T-piece. If there's no local anesthesia on board, we're going to give it a fentanyl bolus that's going to stop it breathing. I want to breathe for it, for example, IPPV. But otherwise, I might even reach for my lack if, if we're doing local anesthesia and he's going to breathe the whole time through and I don't have to do IPPV.
I mean, you know we're doing local amputation. Yes. We're, we're block a clock, always block a clock. Deal amputation, come on, guys. I know it's easy. You know, you're going to snake rook up to geo block You'll be surprised. Can do it. <laughs> but um, I just... This is, this is our goal, man. <laughs> our goal is, like, I want everybody to, like, listen to this podcast. Maybe this one in particular, but all of the podcasts, like, anesthesia nerds, our whole goal is to, like, learn yeah. better, do better, local right? For so, local. Like, once we learn... Locals always yeah. every every single surgery every single painful it can have a local block. Yeah. It's just up to us. I feel like as the technicians or doctors to figure out which local block is the yeah. best. But always local yeah. blocks always. Something that I want to hit on really quickly before we mm -hmm. let you go that you mentioned that maybe people won't be familiar with is you said the word dead space. Now, mm. this isn't just like a cool video game that people are playing um, out there. What in the context of anesthesia does the word dead space mean? Why can it be detrimental? Yeah, now I appreciate it's going to come out of my mouth with my accent. Very funny. So dead space. <laughs> When we think about dead, <laughs> our dead space, we've got um, we've got anatomical dead space. You know, this is where there is no gas exchange occurring within our anatomical structures. So that's going to be the oral cavity. That is going to be the um, you know our trachea. Basically, everything right down to the alveoli. And then we have this. Uh, and you can't you can't help that that anatomical dead space. It is it is what it is. You know we we can't really go and cut a trachea. You know why doesn't a, a giraffe dead space? Why does that not impact it like it would a little um, you know two kilogram cat? Because it's we're used to it. We're designed for that. But when you go and add more onto their normal dead space that they can functionally uh, work with, we and that usually comes from our breathing system or capnograph attachments. Then we, we, you know, when we have apparatus dead space, and that's just like us when we're breathing through a snorkel, snorkel basically, we've extended our dead space and there's a lot of work around trying to pull the breath further to make sure we can still get the same volume into our lungs. So the, the, the biggest question is dead space and how much is too much and how does it impact our patient? I think dead space, try and limit dead space to, um, you know, kind of like less than 10 no more than 20% of that patient's tidal volume. So just kind of know the attachment size that you're using for your patient. So maybe you've got a capnograph attachment and that's 10 mils and you're trying to put that on a two on a three kilogram kitten. You know, that's a huge amount of dead space. So yeah, dead space basically, it's where there is no, in our breathing systems in particular, there is no, um, there, it's mixed, it's an area of where there is kind of this mixed gas space. So there's not just this one limb coming in from the breathing system that's full of fresh gas and then it goes to the Y piece of our breathing system, the patient exhales and it goes down the expiratory limb. There will be those little bits in these attachments where there is no, you know, no longer this nice division of flow. Um, so that's where that patient can do a lot of rebreathing there. The, the hottest topic is how much is too much for our patient and if we can compensate for that by breathing, by increasing their tidal volume for them if we're going to ventilate. But I think the biggest thing we can do with in regards to dead space is just try and eliminate it as much as possible. So don't use big chunky capnograph attachments. Get some low dead space attachments for your ET tubes that you can put your side stream capnograph onto. Um, don't put an uh, in, in circuit manometer right at the ET tube end and increase the dead space by another 10 or so mils. You know, that's not going to matter so much for a big 30 kilogram Labrador because um, in the scheme of things, it's not a problem. But for our little, little patients, 
it could be quite a large percentage of their tidal volume that they're just going to be rebreathing their expiratory gases really i hope that you know that could be a whole podcast in itself really but i hope that little whistle stop <laughs> explanation is enough it's just an area where there's no longer this you know separation of one-way gases you know just inspiratory gas, just expiratory gas. Now it's just mixing in this connection. And typically it's a problem with our apparatus dead space. So things we add to our breathing systems, including long ET tubes that you don't cut down. You know, I was just yeah. going to ask you, yeah. do you cut oh your ET gosh. tubes? This is, seems to be like a hot... Sometimes you go into places and you're like, oh, just cut the tube. And they're like, <gasps> no, that's going to come out my what? salary. And I'm like, it's $2. It's two yeah. pounds. Yeah. It's like a cup of coffee. <laughs> cut it down just cut the et tube short and that's what our little you know brachycephalic babes make a brachycephalic bag where you just keep one let's be honest you only need like five or six brachycephalic sized et tubes because you know they ain't going yeah, big they're all size five <laughs> anyway. so just put them in a little bag they're a couple of dollars for et tubes or a couple of pounds for et tubes it is going to make your life as you need to test so much better and it's going to have a huge impact on your patient's anesthesia um cut them i'm a big fan i go into locum practices and i don't even ask i just cut them same, same. <laughs> um yeah <laughs> yeah i used to recommend when i worked in practice full-time i used to have like a little it was like a little box it was a container it was like the break my breaky box oh yeah um and everybody knows like it had my macintosh blade attachments because i'm i'm a macintosh for you know round apple-headed things or like brachycephalic patients so and then it would have the tube ties, the cut tubes that were smaller, um, you know, all of those things like potential, um, the like thin suction apparatus, you know, that you control with your finger. Cause sometimes with those guys, you need suction yeah. ready and available. So yeah, make yourself a breaky box with some cut down tubes. You, it will, yeah. it will pay yeah. off in the long and run. And cut your cat tubes as well. There was a really, really interesting oh, study yes. and they, they kind of looked at the average length and I think you only basically, you don't need cat ET tubes ever going longer than 16 to 18 centimetres. So, you know, when they come at 24 centimetres, just cut them down. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Now, if people want to get a hold of you or get some information from you, um, where can they find you? Are you on the interwebs? Oh, uh, yeah. Out and about? Yeah, out and about. I mean, if you see me on the at congresses or anything, please say hello because the side eye looks get really weird when people kind of see and they think, well, I can't talk to her. And you're like, please. It, 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 yes. Um, so if you see me out and about at congresses, absolutely pull me to the side. Unless I'm walking very quickly, then I'm, I'm late to something because I have been talking too much. But you can always find me on socials. So that is veterinary a nurse seizure. It's like anesthesia, but nurse, a nurse seizure. Um, you can find me on socials on Facebook and Instagram. You can private message me there um, or you can send me an email as well. So that's just, um, I'm sure this will be in the show notes, but info at anesthesia.co.uk. And I promise I will get back to you. It just... It just depends on the day. It could be within one minute. It could be a voice note within five seconds, or it could be two weeks. Um, but I promise I get back to everybody. Great. Yes, we will put all of those in the show notes. Uh, we will put a link to um, Burton's if you want to check out Courtney's stuff and all of the medical equipment if you are UK based. Yes. Um, and yeah, eventually we got to get you uh, over here to the States <laughs> yeah. so we can uh, enjoy some anesthesia lectures in this gorgeous accent. Yeah, I would absolutely love to. At least I know I can hold attention if I say, say funny words <laughs> like dead space. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> 
All right, thank you so much, Courtney, for being here. And I'm sure that we will hit you up again to talk more anesthesia equipment in the future. Amazing, thanks so much for having me. 